Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollack, the Minister of Culture, the greatest living American writer, and the Editor-in-Chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and many other things. I'm coming to you from my home in Austin, Texas, the Shanghai of the Texas Hill Country, where all culture goes to live and die. We'll be talking to some of our contributors this week from lesser cities like Los Angeles and New York. We're going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about the new Jane Campion movie, The Power of the Dog. TV critic Matthew Ehrlich is going to be here to talk about succession and curb your enthusiasm. A couple of TV shows that you may or may not have heard of. And we're also going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Chris Farnsworth who wrote a geek's guide to holiday shopping, the best comics of the year. And he's also going to talk to me about the new Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show, Hawkeye, starring Jeremy Renner and Hallie Steinfeld. Let's lead off this week with Iggy and the Stooges singing I Want to Be Your Dog, a little love ballad from the early days of punk rock. And we're going to be right back to talk about the power of the dog. Dogs all around. Stephen Garrett and I will be coming up in just a second. talking about movies with Stephen Garrett again this week, like we do pretty much every week. But there's a twist this week. This week, I wrote the movie review. Stephen did see the movie, but he didn't He didn't want to write the review. He's like, no, no, have someone else do it. So I was like, yes, I will do it because the movie is on Netflix and I don't have to pay to go see it. The movie we're talking about is The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion. Back on our screens after a long absence. Stephen is here to talk to me about it. Hello. Hello. So what a what a miserable, sour, misanthropic movie this is. My God. <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? What do you oh, think? Oh no, it's not good. It's not good. You know, it's like, is Power of the Dog a bad movie? You can't really say it's a bad movie. I mean, Jane Campion is uh, you know, a master director and uh, you know, there's lots of beautifully composed nature shots and it, it's all very well elegantly constructed, but man, it's like, it's like if you took Brokeback Mountain and stripped it of all its humanity and, and dignity and warmth, you might have something approximating this movie. So this, this is like a revisionist Western set in 1920s Montana. And it stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons as these brothers who were sort of they're not real country people, but they they somehow became ranchers. They they learned under the tutelage of this mysterious character named Bronco Henry, not not Bronco Billy, the uh, the Clint Eastwood uh, <laughs> car- carnival character from from that 1980s movie, Bronco Henry, who uh, definitely had a homoerotic relationship with Benedict Cumberbatch's character Phil. 
the death of Bronco Henry. Phil took it real hard, and now he has a little hidey hole where he goes and swims and keeps copies of Physical Culture magazine to masturbate to. Look, this is a really uh, like, I'm, it's a really unpleasant movie. I mean, am I wrong about that? Didn't you didn't you kind of react the same way? I'm very mixed on the movie. It's it's wonderfully crafted and directed and impeccably designed, uh, and the story is kind of interesting. But I do agree with you. This Brokeback Mountain comparison is apt, and it just doesn't have the warmth and humanity towards the characters or not humanity, but empathy, you know, or it's a, it's a misguided empathy. It's almost like I love you in spite of being like horrible people instead of I love you because you're people who are in horrible situations. There are elements of it that are very melodramatic. And I feel like with a sturdy melodrama, you earn the moments that are maybe high pitched and if you don't, then those high pitched moments come off as silly or corny or ridiculous. That's the thing is like, you know, Brokeback Mountain. I mean, it, you know, we all know what that movie is about. And but it always felt very real. And like, you, you know, this movie like almost veers off into camp at times. It's, it's like it's like um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character is so repressed that it's 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 absurd. You know, it's like you almost get the sense that no one would care if he was like, hey, I'm a queer, <laughs> you know, I know. Actually, he could pull it off if he just. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Then like three three of the other cowboys would be part of you like, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, hey, talk about Jane Campion. Am I right? It is a little campy like him talking. He just says Bronco Henry once too many times for my for my tickle bone, because once he starts aching for Bronco Henry, I miss Bronco Henry. You know, it's just like. Dude, I get it. You're gay for Bronco Henry. Like, I get it. It's the love of your life. But you couldn't express that. Like, Rosebud. Exactly. Like, come on. Let me make you a rope. Let me oil my whip tonight and get you a rope that I'll lace myself the way that Bronco Henry laced my rope and oiled my whip. You know, like, I get it. You sure sit in that saddle like Bronco Henry. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a line? Exactly. Like, yeah. what? And then also, like, Kirsten Dunst just becoming this, like, super crazy alcoholic. That happened swiftly, and it happened deeply. You know, she's, like, fishing for empties in the back of the house, like in the trash. And that was a bit of a stretch for me. And then also by the end, when she's drunkenly given those gloves to the indigenous. And she's like, these gloves, take these gloves. It was almost like Schindler's List. This is another life. It's a weird movie. And so yeah, Kirsten Dunst. And there's also a, like a, a teenager, college student character played by uh, Cody Smith McPhee, who is an actor, an Australian actor, not the son of J- Jimmy Smith and uh, uh, John McPhee. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, I suppose it's possible, but, you know, he, he sort of is like a, he's sort of a Benedict Cumberbatch's sort of love interest. He's got he's got a kind of a neurodivergent young man, basically, who like dissects animals in his room. This, this is not this movie is going to get a lot of Oscar consideration. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, Stephen? I it's, look, uh, I've seen lists already, top 10 lists where it's near or at the top. And I um, there's part of me that definitely scratches my head at that. And I, I, I do think it's not a bad movie at all. I just think there are certainly better Jim Campion movies. And I think this is a solid but not excellent and perfect, flawless masterpiece. One person pointed out that that Jim Campion as a director and storyteller is not singling out any one person as the star of the film. I mean, you, of course, it's Phil Burbank is the one whose attention we're kind of most drawn to. But everybody gets a fairly equal amount of screen time, it feels. And it could really, Cody Smith-McPhee could be the star of this movie. And 
certain ways he is, you know. Um, and I and I love that trans. I, I love that generosity of storytelling where you can really relate to different characters in different ways depending on how you're entering the story. And Cody Smith McPhee starts out seeming like a very stereotypical, effeminate kind of cowed by masculinity uh, young man. And in fact, as the story goes on, I found his story the most compelling and his arc more the most compelling. He's just he's because, kind of more of a kind of a weird evil genius. He's a little bit of an evil genius, or maybe not evil, but he's he is maybe sociopath adjacent. I see him as a guy who is much stronger and steelier than you give him credit for, and someone who knows how to manipulate uh, the kind of levers of emotion around him um, so that he can get what he wants in a yeah. world that is incredibly tough and is unforgiving to people like him. He's a master of the New West. He's a modern man. He's uh, a bit Machiavellian and a yeah. bit Rasputin-y, you know, yeah. and I, I found that really fantastic. And Benedict Cumberbatch, I found fascinating by the end because he kind of, as he slowly realizes Cody McPhee's power, so to speak, of his dog, I think Benedict, like, respects him more. He he dismisses him initially and then respects him and then maybe starts to fall in love or certainly wants to be the Bronco Henry in his life. And I found that sort of sweet and lovely. And, you know, these are people who were born at a, at the wrong time in history, so to speak. Yes, that's a, a very intelligent analysis of the story. Um, I just feel like the movie itself is very sort of um, is very kind of acid and unfriendly. And it feels like the kind of movie that critics like, but audiences don't, you know? And it's like, if you look at the sort of realm of modern revisionist Westerns, compare this to say, let's say News of the World, which came out last year. I don't know if you saw that or not. But, I did uh, not. I stayed no, away I, from that. But did you like it? How was it? I thought that was a great movie. Uh, you know, being, but it was very old fashioned. You know, it was a Tom Hanks. It was very actiony. It was very heartfelt. But um, I, I found it enormously entertaining and moving. Whereas I, I, this movie kept, made me feel very chilly and distanced. Um, so you compare this to like that movie or you know the Coen Brothers revisionist westerns, and it just doesn't have that same spirit of adventure and fun. I also I got to mention too. The soundtrack, my God. I mean, the shrieking violins and the <laughs> piano. It's like, I'm like, this is the West we're talking about. And I felt like at times I was watching a sequel to Hereditary. You know, the close, right. the close ups of the flies on the horse's eye and all that stuff. I'm like, stop hitting me over the head. Okay, we get it. We're all in darkness. We get it. <laughs> Look, I think it's refreshing to see a woman director's take on toxic max masculinity, you know, and to see a female gaze, you know, and a female kind of scrutiny of uh, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a man out west and on a ranch um, where life is tough. And, you know, you've sure. got to act just as tough or even tougher to make to inspire the men around you to do what they, you need them to do. So, yeah, it's very unfriendly. It's very chilly. And now it's based on a book and I haven't read the book, so I don't I can't claim to say that it's a great adaptation or a bad adaptation or it, the book is, has, you know, other themes that she's not really getting into. But knowing going in that it was based on a book, I might I might have might have pl plucked that from the local library. I read the News of the World book, which was also quite excellent. Anyway, The Power of the Dog, a very strange uh, gay western about toxic masculinity, directed by Jane Campion. It is now airing <laughs> airing on Netflix. It's going to get some Oscar consideration. Again, it's like I feel like it's the kind of movies the critical establishment really likes. I think this uh, lines up Jane Campion very well for directing the sequel to Eternals. Hey. 
Yeah, exactly. Let's get another acclaimed female director to get into the Marvel Marvel sphere. She she um, has adamantly volunteered in interviews that she does not like superhero movies. So I I'm afraid she'll take a pass if that's offered. I imagine. What's her price? What's Jane Campion's price? Oh, you think you can buy her? You can't be bought. What are you talking about? Fifty man? million. Fifty million dollars. She might do it. That's the power of the dog right there. All right, power of the dog airing on Netflix now. Stephen, we will talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, man. It's December, and at Book and Film Globe, as well as many other publications, that means it's time for a year in review pieces. We kicked off this week with a holiday gift buying guide for geeks or nerds or whatever you want to call them. Chris Farnsworth wrote this up for us. It's a, a guide to everything in the comics world for 2021, and it was a really, uh, really potent year. Chris, hello. Hey, how are you doing? I am fine. So, yeah, you featured, uh, highlighted a bunch of great stuff, uh, including a new Eternals series. I know Eternals is something that no one really outside of comic book people knew about before this year, but now everyone knows. But, you know, that movie was, I mean, it did what it had to do, but it was pretty corny. But this uh, this series, this new series you're talking about is, uh, is a, sounds a lot more uh, complex and interesting. Yeah, that I think is the the best thing about it. I mean, Kieran Gillen uh, really works well, you know, with the idea of big godlike characters, big ideas. He solves the Superman problem really well. I think the Eternals have a big Superman problem in that if they're around, you don't need any other heroes because that's their job. They take care of everything. And he takes what, you know, would cripple most writers and turns that into something really cool. He figures out a way to make the problems big enough for something them to handle. And then he hems them in. He sort of paints them into a corner and forces them to fly out, which is really cool. I mean, the Eternals have always had a hard, hard time fitting in with the rest of the Marvel Universe because they are so big, super powerful, basically immortal. Yes. Uh, but but so is this a limited edition series or is, is this uh, an ongoing situation? Yeah, it's an ongoing series, but I think it's being broken up into smaller series. Like the first six books were one arc, and then there's going to be another arc where Thanos uh, comes back into the mix. And it's great. I mean, you know, it's it also really satisfies the comic book nerd in me who likes just big, you know, stupid fights. You know, you get to see somebody wailing on Thanos, which is uh, which is always a great thing for me. Nobody minds watching getting Thanos punched in the head. Um, exactly. So on, to switch gears over to DC Comics, you also write about there's a new uh, Sandman series, like a spinoff of Neil Gaiman's classic Sandman series, which is finally being turned into a TV show. Yeah, Sandman, I mean, is it has so many facets and so many great things. And Neil Gaiman being only one guy, even though he writes so much and does so many things, you know, hasn't been back to it for a long time. So last year, DC actually expanded the Sandman universe and came up with all these spinoffs. And the one that I really loved was... Was the one written by G. Willow Wilson, and it was called The Dreaming Waking Hours. And it's basically it's an extension of the characters and an extension into the universe. There's, you know, there's fallen angels, there's fairy kings and queens, um, there's a low rent uh, magician. It's really it was really like being back in the original series uh, again, which not all of the spinoffs have had that same sort of sense of, you know, wonder or the ability to this magical realist ability to mix the insane and the incredible and the dreamlike with the everyday. And I think that the, this series really does that. It's hard to imagine for somebody who's coming into comics now, how, how original 
Sandman was when it first appeared with its with its you know dream sequences and its huge um, surreal splash pages and the sort of the the dialogue that was written in italics and different colors like that was not normal when that when that came out. Right, and I mean the depth of knowledge that that Gaiman brought into it. Like Alan Moore, he just he redid he reinvented everything, and it's sort of like you know not to be too grandiose, but it's like Citizen Kane in that if you look at Citizen Kane now, you're like, well, that's you know that's that's a good movie, but I don't see why it's revolutionary. And you forget that that was the first time anybody did jump cuts or flashbacks or uh, you know fade ins. Everything that's unique about Sandman has been imitated by other people, and so that's what made Wilson's job so much harder in Waking Hours was to bring something fresh and new to something other people have tried. All right. Also uh, from the DC Comics family is a, uh, a new Watchmen miniseries called Rorschach. Obviously, Watchmen has, um, you know, has become something completely different and broader thanks to the HBO show. But uh, Rorschach is sort of the signature character of Alan Moore's original Watchmen, and he is he is back in his own series. Right. Rorschach is was the guy who, you know, was meant to illustrate that being a costume vigilante is not for sane people. There are a lot of people who took the wrong or at least not the message Moore meant from that. And the, and Moore himself has has completely left Watchmen behind. He, he, he disavows any sequels. He doesn't you know, he's still fighting with DC over it. So there are definitely purists out there who say that this never should have been done. But I don't think that gives uh, Tom King and uh, Jorge Fornes enough credit for what they've done here. It picks up both from from the series and from Damon Lindelof's HBO series based on Watchmen and sort of creates a paranoid conspiracy political thriller in that world. And it just it it's incredibly bleak. There's this sense of airless paranoia that just permeates every panel. And it's really, really incredibly well done. It's the kind of combination of writing and art that you really rarely, rarely see in comics anymore. You wouldn't expect it to be a situation comedy. I mean, he is one of the darkest characters. And and, and you said it it is in continuity with the HBO show. So some of those characters who were introduced also appear. They're peripheral. It's basically it talks about, you know, there's a there's a line in which they talk about cops in the uh, in the Midwest and in Texas who who now dress up like superheroes. And they talk and people are still terrified of a possible squid invasion. They are, you know, 20 years behind us in technology because for years nobody would use a cell phone because they were sure that cell phones caused the squid invasion. Ozymandias is, you know, he's he's he never shows up. You never see Rorschach himself except in flashbacks. But you do see the way in which the idea of Rorschach has changed everything in their world, which I think is really fitting for our world because comic books have changed the way we look at our reality. I mean, that sounds overblown and LSD trippy, but it's true. We, we look at the world in, in terms of uh, in terms of superheroes and supervillains now. Yeah, I mean, there there's the sort of no end to, um, you know, comics, intellectual property. It seems like every week we talk about something related to that. So let's pivot here and let's talk about something else. And that is, as there almost always is these days, there's a new uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this one is called Hawkeye, and it stars Jeremy Renner as, you know, the, the sort of last Avenger to get his own movie or TV show. You know, the Hawkeye is kind of like the joke Avenger, you know, the one that with the trick arrows who no right. one uh, seems to really like. And I, and I feel like this show has a great time with that and really kind of 
plays to Jeremy Renner's strengths. You know, he's got he's got pretty good comic timing just as an actor in general. And Hawkeye is like a like a Christmas candy. It's really a delightful show. It's surprisingly entertaining. It is. It's really great. I mean, I think the, the MCU is the best thing that's ever that ever happened to Hawkeye, the character, because, yeah, in the comics, pretty much nobody likes him. And he's not he's not particularly likable. I'm a huge fan of the comic book series that this show takes a lot of its DNA from by Matt Fraction and David Aja, which was called My Life as a Weapon. And it shows Hawkeye doing what he does when he's not an Avenger. And that's that's definitely the idea behind the show, too. But, you know, he's got a guy with James Bond level skills and you can just see how he's just exasperated at every turn by having to deal with all these normal people who just do not understand what he deals with on a daily basis. Well, on a daily basis, he lives on a farm in the Midwest with his with with Linda Cardellini and a bunch of kids. But I mean, I feel like the thing that really puts the show over the top is Halle Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, who is Hawkeye's protege. And I feel like, you know, she has that sort of gee whiz pluck to her that that like that it really endears people to. Marvel properties like Spider-Man or like the old school Captain uh, Captain America, you know, she's really like excited to be a hero and she's got a lot of wit and a lot of enthusiasm and, yeah. uh, you know, and she's just she's just uh, incredibly delightful to watch. I mean, there's there's no question about it. And, yeah. And you haven't seen uh, the third episode, you said, but uh, they introduced a new sort of anti-hero uh, called Echo, who is a Marvel uh superhero character who I'm not totally familiar with, but she's also the woman who plays her also extremely good, very charismatic. And uh, the third episode in particular, I mean, you've got to, you got to see it. Cause it's like, there's a really fun car chase and there's lots of great stunts and just really good humor. I mean, it's, it's surprisingly good, especially given that the MCU TV shows, a lot of them have been, you know, kind of dark, you know, WandaVision right. had a lot of darkness to it. And uh, Loki was, was pretty grim in places. And even the, the winter soldier show that was not, wasn't really a comedy, but this is like right. a, like a holiday comedy. Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, this is the anti-Watchmen. Watchmen, you know, 30 years ago made the world very dark. And so did The Dark Knight Returns. And, the, you know, Marvel, but Marvel's, Marvel's cinematic universe always manages to turn a little bit toward the light, toward the hopefulness like you're talking about. Like Kate Bishop wants to be a hero. Whereas in the world of Rorschach and Watchmen, it's like, why in God's name would anyone want to be a hero? You'd have to you have to be brain damaged. You have to be mentally, mentally unsound. The MCU keeps adding heroes. Yes, exactly. It's you don't you don't really get that in in a lot of in a lot of comic book properties anymore. The idea that heroes are actually appreciated and loved for what they do. Yeah, yeah, but Haw- so Hawkeye's on Disney Plus now, and I, I I'm surprised at how highly I recommend it. I was like, I, you know, a new episode popped up last night. My wife and I were like, ooh, Hawkeye. Yeah, no, I'm not allowed <laughs> to watch it without my daughters, so we're going to watch it tonight. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a family thing. We, we yeah, every, we're really excited to see it and we're we're loving it. So it's literally the most family friendly show uh, around. It's like the whole the motivation is, is that Clint Martin Hawkeye wants to get home to his family for Christmas. Right. Like it's um, yeah, it's almost like planes, trains and automobiles with a superhero. You know, it's like he's got to get through yeah, all yeah. that stuff just to get home. And, and 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 pizza dog. And oh, yeah. Lucky the pizza dog. Yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, I was so glad. I actually, yeah, cheered when I saw him in the trailer because he's he's the best part of the comics. And yeah, Lucky is I'm, I'm a huge dog person anyway. But yeah, Lucky's fantastic. All right. Well, Hawkeye's on Disney Plus now. And Chris Farnsworth's article is a uh, geek's shopping guide for the holidays is also up. 
Chris, thank you so much for uh, for being a geek and for knowing so much about comics. And we will uh, talk to you soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. the book and film globe week in review podcast we are finally getting around to talking about succession which is now in the middle of its third season on hbo we're the last entertainment podcast to talk about succession but we're going to do it in the best possible way i'm talking to matthew ehrlich who's a new uh contributor of ours matthew used to write for television without pity and now book and film globe is the new television without pity matthew hello Hey, how's it going? It's going well. So you wrote about succession on the site and, you know, you made the point. It's a point I've heard before, but you made it very well that, you know, succession is extremely popular among people who like quality TV, despite the fact that it has no likable characters. There's no one to root for. It's it's, it's a bunch. They're a bunch of evil, narcissistic bastards. The whole lot of them. Yes. So for those of you who don't watch Succession, it's about uh, a family, the Roy family. They're kind of like the Murdochs. They have some a massive corporate empire, largely based, largely media based, but they also do amusement parks and cruise ships and whatnot. And so, Matthew, have you you found that this season they were like any more unlikable than usual? Well, the thing that's kind of happening right now is that initially when the first, you know, during the first season, um, there was this sense of, oh, who's it going to be? Who's going to succeed? Uh, and then it became clear that uh, Logan Roy, the, you know, the patriarch doesn't really want to s- step down. There's something a little bit sick and twisted about all of this. It's like he's he's making them all fight with each other over this position that doesn't seem to really exist. And it's almost kind of like what I call the Gilligan. Island principle of television, where it's like they want to get off the island, but they can't get off the island because they do. The show's over because the show is called Gilligan's Island. And once they leave the island, that's it. So as soon as a successor is named, it's kind of like the show fulfills its purpose. At first, it's suspenseful, but now, you know, like a lot of people that I talk to who are watching the show are kind of like, Okay, is it going to be Shiv? Is it going to be Roman? Is it going to be Ken? And then it's kind of like, well, they're just they're just toying with us at this point. We don't care. <laughs> yeah, it does. It doesn't really matter because none of them do anything. That's the irony is that the, the, there's four kids, uh, yeah. Logan Roy, and there's also Connor, who has you know right. played by Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller's Day Off of all people, and he he doesn't have he doesn't have a prayer. He's the oldest sibling, and he's the only one from a different mother, and he's a complete moron. Right. And yet he may run for president. Right. He really wants to. He really thinks he has some sort of weird mishmash of like environmentalism and libertarianism that that seems to be his ideology. Anyway, the show is look, Succession is, in my mind, you know, it's not always the warmest and most enjoyable show on television, but I think it's the best written show on television. And the acting is incredible. Every episode, there's not that much that goes on. It's just a bunch of boardroom shenanigans, but it's just every episode is gripping and the relationships are really funny and clear. But again, like you said, there's no one to really latch onto. Like Kendall Roy, who's ostensibly the heir apparent to the company, is just is a drug addict in recovery. But he's also just a complete douche. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's interesting what they're doing. I feel as though the first and second season – 
Kendall really seemed to be um, an addict who was struggling to get sober. And then he relapsed. And then clearly, you know, when Kendall's on drugs, he's out of control. And then this season, there's something not right about him. He's completely off his rocker. And yet there's no um, I keep wondering is are we supposed to think that he's on drugs or is it that he's just kind of out of control? You know, I keep thinking to myself, you know, if he were sober, he would be at least shown somehow maintaining that sobriety in some fashion. But there seems to be this sense that he's not doing drugs, but he's not well either. Well, yeah, uh, as an as an addict in recovery, I can tell you that sobriety is, yes, it has to do with consuming substances, but he's not doing the other work, you know, the the I, self-reflection, yeah. the humility necessary in order to achieve real sobriety. And so he's just, he's just kind of rambling around. He's just such a, he's such a narcissist. It's, it's unbelievable. And then, you know, at the end of his 40th birthday party, when he is, you know, clearly has been devastated by how it all went, you know, that's kind of where an addict would pick up and he doesn't, but he doesn't also go to a meeting either. It's like somehow the, the, the tension of, you know, the addict in recovery has been removed from the plot line somehow. And I wonder if they, if that was a, if that's an oversight on their part or if that's, there's something else is going on that we just don't know. Well, and then you have Siobhan, who is the, the only uh, female sibling you know, played by Sarah Snook. And she you you got a, a vague feeling at the beginning of the show that she was the sympathetic one. You know, she's right. Uh, the she's liberal, she's yeah. liberal, right? Yeah. She's she's more Ivanka like she's not, you know, her politics are clearly like, you know, in more in line with the Democrats, whereas the other the rest of them are. They never say they're Republicans, but they're obviously Republicans. Uh, but then the show took her in the direction where she was this very unfaithful spouse. And this year she's just a complete corporate lackey. Like there seemed to be no politics at all. She seemed she has no principles. I feel as though she works the hardest. I sort of I don't root for any of them, but I always and I, I did. I think I rooted for her a lot harder initially. And now I'm like, oh, you're really just as much of a suck up as the other two. But you do the work. Um, she seems to really have she's a lot more buttoned up and she's a lot less inappropriate than the other two brothers. There's something very dependable about her. And yet because she's a girl and because the the threat of the cruise ship mishap has now sort of passed, it faded in people's memory. She's no longer they no longer need, you know, a female to be the head of the corporation. She's not as useful. The one the one character, this is the character my wife loves. I mean, everyone loves co uh, cousin Greg. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's also like a complete self-serving moron. He's just younger than the rest of them. And he's and he's a, a hilariously bumbling. But, you know, you can't really root for him either. I mean, he's 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 completely playing his own game also. Yeah. You know what? He reminds me of. Did you ever see the death of Stalin? Yes, of course. So he reminds me of Khrushchev in the death of Stalin in a sense that he perseveres because he's sort of he's dumb, but he knows he's dumb. So he stays out of the way of all of the intrigue that kind of brings down Beria, who's more cunning, but then he's like too smart for his own good. So, you know, I can see Cousin Greg kind of falling to the top based on the fact that he just doesn't know enough to get into trouble. Yeah, he's sort of a last man standing like character. And, you know, that that would be in, in some ways an obvious way uh, for, for the show to go to end up to, for Greg to end up running the show. But it, it would still be a better ending than, um, you know, Bran Stark <laughs> ascending to the Iron Throne. <laughs> the most the, mo the most disappointing and yet hilarious ending in TV history. 
Anyway, so Matthew wrote a great piece about succession and it's on the site now. And, you know, people don't go to the office anymore. There's no more water cooler talk. But if there were, you know, the 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 special people would still be talking about succession around the water cooler. Exactly. All right. I wanted to switch gears real quick. So I have a piece up uh, on the site about Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is at this point, you know, as, as stale as you know, a year old box of matzah that you uh, <laughs> left in the pantry, you know, that's it's on its 11th season. I mean, I feel like Curb Your Enthusiasm has been on HBO forever. And, you know, this season, I mean, I love Curb and I always will. And, there, you know, it makes me laugh a lot pretty much every every week. But, you know, I'm a little disappointed in this season because everyone was like, well, this is the pandemic season. You know, what's Larry David going to say about social distancing and masking and, um, you know, are, are he and Leon going to be in quarantine together? And, you know, how how is Jeff going to sneak out of the house to go play golf with him or whatever? And, there, you know, there hasn't been any of that. Right. I know. And it's interesting how TV is treating uh, COVID as in general. I mean, they're either staying away from it big time or with, you know, when you have the morning show, for instance, they dealt with it, but it just didn't work. Everyone is like, oh, you know, and um, one of the things that I noticed about Curb Your Enthusiasm is, you know, when Albert Brooks has that funeral for himself and they find out that he's a quote unquote COVID hoarder, like I think they're trying to, you know, one of the things that they did in Seinfeld Curb Your Enthusiasm is they always sort of coined these terms that everyone the next day at the water cooler would be like, oh, he's a clothes talker. He's a yeah, he's wearing a puffy shirt. Right. But exactly right. There's always he's trying to, like, you know, make fetch happen, as it were. And so the COVID hoarder thing, I mean, I don't recall anyone during COVID. I recall pieces in the newspaper about how you couldn't find toilet paper in the stores, but no one specifically got called out for hoarding toilet paper. So there's a scene where the closet door opens and everyone finds out he's got all his Purell and toilet paper. And they're like, you're a, you're a, you're a, a COVID hoarder. And everyone runs out and yet no one's wearing a mask. And if they're not wearing masks, wouldn't that be mentioned or something like that? There's no, you know, what I think of when I think of COVID as I think of, you know, some people are wearing masks, some people aren't, people are getting self-righteous about it, um, whether or not people are having the vaccine. But I just feel like the whole, I think that, you know, they mentioned it. So COVID has happened. I mean, for instance, in succession, it seems as though COVID has not happened in that right. universe at all. I was going to say that, you know, in COVID, in succession, like, you know, there's no COVID. I wouldn't expect Curb to do like, let's say what the Connors does, which is to have, you know, Jackie and and whatever to lose their jobs because of the COVID shutdowns and everyone's trying to figure out how to you know survive or whatever. Obviously, no one in, in Larry David's world is going to be having those problems. And yet all they do is go to restaurants. They're constantly in right, restaurants. Right. And, right. and the wait staff aren't wearing masks. None of the customers are wearing masks. You know, there's no um there's a whole thing um, in the most recent episode where uh, Larry and, and Jeff are just flying back from a business trip to New York where they were auditioning actors. No one in the airport is wearing a mask. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you think that this would be, you know, this is perfect a setup for a Seinfeldian situation. Like, for instance, someone has their mask on, but it's not over their nose. I naturally thought, well, they're not going to go there, but they sort of went there. So COVID is in their universe. And yet it and isn't. It, it isn't. 
it's bizarre. You know, I just, yeah. it, it, that's the thing. It's like they mention it a couple of other times, too. But it's just like I don't know if you've been to Los Angeles during the pandemic, but that place is wound tighter than than, a, you know, a drum. It's like it's like every there's a lot of tension uh, yeah. and a lot of problems. And I just and I wonder is like, did Larry David make the conscious decision to ignore those problems or do they just because he's so rich? Do they not affect him? But, even, you know, he's always in a doctor's office and no, no one's wearing masks in doctor's offices. I know, I and know. I don't care. I don't personally care whether you anyone wears a mask anywhere or not. That's not the thing. The thing is it's a thing, you know, it's I mean, a it's, thing. It's the world. Yeah. And it's Larry. You know, it's like why? You know, I, and, and it just feels like it feels like a mistake to me and kind of an oversight. And then. This was some shebang on entertainment Twitter this week where somebody posted a, a list of all the people who were working in sort of COVID compliance on Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's a whole screen full of people. So they had that airport scene. But when they weren't filming the airport scene, everyone was wearing a mask until right. it came time to film the scene. And then they took their masks off. And I don't understand David's thought process on this. And I hate to criticize him because he is the great comic genius of all time. Oh. You know, the feeling that I get when I was, I, you know, I wasn't watching this show for a while and then I binged a few episodes to get up to date for this conversation. And the feeling that I had was, you know how like Martha Graham, the Martha Graham dance company, it's there to sort of pre preserve the genius that is Martha Graham. And, you know, in 1926, when Martha Graham first introduced this form of dance, people were blown away by, you know, these authentic movements and so forth. And, you know, contrary to ballet and so forth. And now it's like, you know, Martha Graham's been around for a while. And when you go see her, it's more like a museum piece. You know, it's like, oh, this was so radical back in its day. And look, they've lovingly preserved everything. And the Noguchi sculpture and the Aaron Copeland compositions. And it's, you know, Seinfeld used to be a really quite groundbreaking show and Curb Your Enthusiasm was there for people who liked that style of comedy. And now I just feel like this is sort of like what TV used to be like in the 80s and the aughts. And we're watching it and we're going, yeah, yeah, he's still, you know, he's still in good form. But like, it's like we're in a museum observing it rather than it's actually entertaining us. Right. He still can construct that kind of plot right, that right. he's so brilliant yeah. at. And, and there are still plenty of laughs. You know, the whole the whole deal with like Leon trying to find someone named Mary Ferguson to go to Asia with is well, hilarious. It's yeah. like one of the funniest things I've, I've ever seen. However, the whole idea, given all the travel bans that are now being put back into place, the whole idea of just being able to saunter off to Asia is absurd. And it, it yeah. makes no sense. And since Curb Your Enthusiasm is observational humor about social foibles, I just feel like he, he let me down a little bit. What can I say? Yeah, I'm sure he cares. Like he I, gives a shit. Right. One of the other things that I noticed is that when – Initially, when Curb Your Enthusiasm first debuted and a lot of celebrities were on Curb Your Enthusiasm playing themselves, you got the feeling that Larry David was hanging out, you know, Seinfeld was huge. His reputation was huge. And he would run into people at parties who said, oh, my God, I'm a fan. He'd say, hey, come be on my show. And they'd be like, oh, yes, I would love to walk on and be on, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
And now, like, there are celebrities on that show playing themselves, like Lucy Liu and Laura Keitlinger. Where has she been lately? But they don't look – it looks almost like The Love Boat or Murder, She Wrote, where, you know, people who aren't exactly famous anymore but need something to do have shown up on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, Lucy Liu is now a love interest of, of, of Larry David. What happened? <laughs> I, guess, I guess, although, you know, they do have John Hamm. That's true. Seth Rogen's on this season and Woody Harrelson. I wouldn't say any of those three are like, you know, that, that that's hardly like Jaja Gabor, yeah. you know, it's like, it's not, but there is, there is, there's a, it's kind of a mixed bag. And it was nice to see Albert Brooks again. You know, he, right. he still had pretty good timing. I wish they'd used him more, you know, and all that. But again, like, I just feel like Larry David's really like, uh, he kind of blew a pandemic tire and I'm, I'm just a little disappointed. Yeah. And I'm also intrigued by uh, some of the celebrities play themselves and some of them play other characters. Vince Vaughn does not play himself. I mean, I think Vince Vaughn playing himself would be brilliant, but he plays Freddie Funkhauser, the brother of the of Marty Funkhauser, who's deceased. Uh, the actor is deceased, Bob Einstein, who actually is the real life brother of Albert Brooks. And these are the kinds of things that I know. <laughs> OK. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Albert Brooks's real name is Albert Einstein. And that's one. To grow, that's one to grow on. Yeah. All right. Well, Matthew Ehrlich, Book and Film Globe contributor. We are the new television without pity. It's uh, good to have you on the show and it's good Thank to have you on the site. So much for having me. It's been a delight. All right. Ciao for now. All right. Thanks, Matthew Ehrlich, for talking to me about Succession and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Current seasons are airing now on HBO Max and HBO if you don't have HBO Max. Max, not Max. Who knows anymore? Also, thanks to Chris Farnsworth for talking to me about the year in comics and about Hawkeye, a fun show that you should watch. And Stephen Garrett, as always, for stopping in to talk to me about The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We'll be back next week with more exciting podcast action. Talk to you soon. I hate dumb titles. Power of the Dog? What the fuck does that mean, man? What are you kidding me? It's, it's oh, from the I Bible. Know. You know what I hate, too? Movies that explain their titles. Atlanta Haim isn't like, mm, this tastes like licorice pizza. Give me a break. Don't explain your titles. And that's the power of the dog. Nobody. The, like, yeah. Does Daniel Day-Lewis ever go, there will be blood. And, and here's the Bible verse that says. <laughs> Come on, man. Do better. Oh, you are.